1: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: Hi, everyone. Paul here. We are taking a short break
1: over the holiday season, and so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week's is from Lisa Alexander. Lisa's interview was one of the first we ever did, and her thoughts on high performance and team trademarks shaped many of the subsequent interviews we have gone on to do. She is an elite coach and human being, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect
0: is not about that scoreboard out there.
2: This is a chance, a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all
0: on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
2: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no
0: doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity.
1: Hello, my name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is Lisa Alexander. Lisa was the coach of the Australian netball team known as the Diamonds from 2011 to 2020. Her coaching journey started in country Victoria before she progressed to coach the Melbourne Phoenix in the national competition, taking the team to two title wins in 2002 and 2003. She was appointed head coach of the Australian under-21 netball team in 2006. And then in 2011, she was named as the head coach of the Australian national team, taking over from the legendary Norma Plummer. She then went on to coach the national team for 102 games, winning 83 of those. She oversaw gold medal success at the 2014 Commonwealth Games and the 2015 Netball World Cup. Lisa is an articulate and passionate coach who speaks candidly about the issues propelling elite performance. She has high expectations and standards and you will hear her talk about this in the context of team culture and the Sisters in Arms trademark that she introduced. Other highlights of the discussion for me included expecting her players to not only become leaders on the court, but also aspiring to be a Prime Minister off the court. How Google looks for employees with coaching experience, and how coaches socialising with athletes can create problems within the team. It's a great conversation with Lisa, and at the end of it, I felt quite confident that we would be seeing her transition into coaching other sports in the near future. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
0: We apologize for the audio interference that happens throughout parts of this interview. The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: So Lisa Alexander, good morning, or good afternoon rather, and, uh, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on today.
1: We're very excited to talk to you about your experiences, but I'd like to ask something really simple to, to start off. Where are you in the world today?
2: um we are living in evoca in country victoria it's about 170 odd kilometers northwest of melbourne in victoria australia um we're actually in pretty full covid lockdown at the moment Um, melbourne's just moved into stage four which is um yeah it's pretty prohibitive for everybody and country victoria where we are has just moved back into stage three so Um, We can only go out of the house for four reasons. And, um, yeah, so unfortunately our cases have gone up so high that we've just got to, you know, do all the right things and hopefully in six weeks' time we can start throwing some netballs around again. Well, let's hope
1: that this hour uh, provides a little bit of light relief from your lockdown then.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: Lisa, I in preparing for today's interview, I, I read this this great quote that I'd like to, to play back to you. You said, um, I want to see the players doing really well and growing as young women in the future, and I still want a prime minister out of them. We've got to get that. So I'd like to ask by saying, in your sport, what is the role of the coach?
2: Well, I think in netball, and it's been really interesting because we've had no sport for quite a long time, um, in Australia. And it's such a big part of our culture and particularly in country towns where I'm at the moment, the footy and netball team, um, competition is actually a really big part of the social connection of the, um, the community. So to not have that at the moment is actually quite hard for everybody, particularly, um, farmers who work you know on their own and on their farms and their families and then they come in together into the town to play their sport they can't do that at the moment and the role of the coach is actually a very special one here um, particularly in country towns where you know they're often the person that's seen as a, a person to look up to a real role model a leader and so they're more than just a sporting coach. And I guess that's what I've always tried to get across in my coach education courses whenever I've I've done those is to explain to the coaches that you are so much more to young people and don't forget the effect that you can have on young people. Um, it can obviously be very positive, and some, but unfortunately, sometimes it can be not a good experience for young people. So... I always say that um, if the netballers are coming to your sessions, they're happy, they're enjoying themselves, then really that's really what you should be focusing on is that they're coming, they're enjoying it, they're learning about themselves, they're, they're learning about each other and they're learning a great sport as well. Um, I was very fortunate to visit the Google headquarters a couple of years ago and I spoke to people at Google in Australia and um, they wanted to hear about what a bit about the diamonds, but they also were telling us a lot about their, what, what makes Google tick. And one of the very interesting things was, and I passed it on to my stepsons particularly was the fact that they look for in people that they are looking to recruit. They look for leaders. They look for people with technical know-how. They look for people with out of the box thinking but they look for people who've been coaches. And so I said to my stepson, who's a rowing coach, I said, this is fantastic, Henry. The the employee of the future, really the workplaces are looking for people who are, have shown responsibilities towards others and being able to know how to run a team, organise a team and be part of a team. So I think, you know, the wonderful sport of netball being such a true team sport, isn't that fantastic for the young women out there particularly who play it, but also there's young men that play it as well.
1: Lisa, it's exactly the same conversation I had with my daughter that led to this podcast, actually. Um, The importance of a coach. We all know about the importance of star players and and star athletes and they get a lot of news and headlines. But being able to lead and organise a group of people is a very unique skill and it's one that you increasingly need in the future. So it's wonderful to hear that story. You've had a long history as a coach and you were also a successful player. I'd really like to know the coaches that you've experienced along the way have really taught you and what lessons from them you've taken into your own coaching philosophy.
2: Uh, yeah, look, you, you definitely get influenced by your coaches. And I think of the coaches that I had when I started netball as a 10-year-old Um, in grade five at school back in many years ago and they were young teenagers themselves and we I played for a local church team and they were probably part of the church community too and um, they were just really lovely two lovely young women Um, I can't actually remember their names but I can see their faces and they just enjoyed it you could see the enjoyment that they got from Um, organizing training and we were quite a competitive little team so we play I played with all of my friends from school and um, of course if it was a church team you had to go to church on a Sunday as well so that was part of the commitment And we often used to travel together over to the eastern suburbs of Melbourne to compete because it was a church competition and most of the church, you know, comps were over at Ringwood and East Ringwood and East Burwood. So there was some ding-dong battles though. And I was in a a grand final in that very first year playing centre. And I just remember the coaches being really encouraging, which I thought was terrific because – School in those days it was a bit of it was a bit of fear. You know, you did get kind of controlled by fear more than um, more than positive and proactive feedback. However, the teachers that stick in my mind are the ones that inspired me. And I had some PE teachers at high school who coached me in Netball as well. And um, I must have looked up to them majorly because I ended up becoming a mathematics and phys ed teacher myself. And I just remember that they always looked after the person as well as the athlete. So, um, and I was very academic when I was at school. So having to combine study with playing sport was a little bit different in those days, particularly for a young woman. And so those coaches who encouraged me to keep up my study, but still play sport, that was very important for me too. And then I guess once I got up into the elite level, the coaches that really, I guess, inspired me was definitely my first coach at my club, East Doncaster. We had uh, Dr. Robin English who, you know, I didn't even know there was a doctorate of philosophy at that stage and I was pretty lucky to be coached by somebody like her and the fact that she fought outside the box and she was very, structured with her tactical understanding so she had a lot of influence on me at that time um, and then I moved into the state teams and had Norma Plummer for a number of years and Norma's training sessions are legendary. Um, I remember one day and Simone McInnes and myself and Rosalie Jenke were all in this team together it was the Victorian team we were preparing for 1986 nationals in Darwin and we had to prepare for really hot weather because norma said you know it's going to be hot and we've got finals so i want you to be really really fit so we had to train in our um, wet uh, track suits you know the ones for wet weather uh, so it was sort of sort of like having a sauna and we would do indian file at the start of every training session without fail indian file means you run around the netball court and the first person is the jogger and the last person has to sprint forward. So, it's a terrific fartlek training regimen. And we did that for 15 minutes. And, yeah, we were always exhausted at the end. But I have to tell you, we were the fittest we'd ever been. And then we would do our skill session. And then we would play match play. So, those sessions would go for three hours at least. So... <laughs> I often talk to the players of today about our sessions and many of them being coached by Norma as well. But of course, today the players have much shorter sessions, but they're very intense. It's not, I'm not saying they're lazier. It's just that we used that time together to, it was really excellent bonding time together. You know, often we'd be mumbling under our breaths about how hard our coach was. But, um, you know, it also steeled us and and gave us great resilience. And we knew that we could dig into the pain threshold to get through some really hard times together. And we actually won that championship and Victoria hadn't won for a long time. So it was a pretty proud moment. We'd done a lot of the hard yards and, you know, that's why Norma has been and is such a great coach. And then of course I've had Joyce Brown. Um, I've only had her a little bit because she only took me for some sessions before getting prepared for world champs in 1987. But her training sessions again were the same, that really intense. She would be yelling a lot. Um, if you dropped the ball, you'd know it. But she was also very encouraging as well. So while she was scary, she was encouraging and she lifted the intensity of sessions with her voice. And so that's what I learned the most from her is how much you could use your voice to raise the intensity and keep people focused on the goal at hand. And she's also a very inspiring person. She's very creative, intelligent. Um, She obviously saw that I had coaching potential as well. And I missed that cut for that world champs team in 1987 and that hurt a lot because um, I did a lot of extra training to get there. Um, but it also taught me that, you know, there were things in my game I needed to improve and that actually helped me to coach better, particularly with the young players that I looked after in the Victorian State team. So they're the coaches probably the most that I learnt the most from. And I got to spend five hours in a car talking to Joyce Brown when I was her apprentice coach, when we were travelling from Auckland down to Waikato. And she didn't talk about netball, she talked about life and how she'd overcome all her struggles and the the challenges that she'd had with having four children and how did she manage that. And, you know, she told me a few of the things that she did and it was a a fascinating time and it just gave you the confidence to have a go. I want
1: to talk to you later on in in this discussion about taking over from the great Norma Plummer, which you did when you became the Australian coach. But... I'd actually like to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, you talk there about fear and scary and demanding coaches. And yet, you know, you have a reputation of being someone who is able to know their players at a very deep and intimate level, but also have some distance from them when required. Um, In fact, I've got this quote here where you say you can look after people as well as you possibly can, and do the right thing by them off the court, but still be very, very demanding on the court. A lot of coaches find it very difficult to find that line. Um, And I'd wonder if you could talk about advice that you've got on remaining dispassionate enough to be a good coach, but also close enough to the players to know them intimately.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's my teaching background again that gives me the skills to be able to do that. I think um, every teacher understands that there is a line that you, you know, you get to know your students, but you, uh, you know, you're in you're in charge of their psychological and physical well-being, and um, that's a very important line in the sand. And it's the same with coaching. And I think I've always brought that to my coaching. Um, I think I've learnt my lesson a couple of times where I've been probably a bit too close with the players socially. And that does come back to bite you. And I see that as a mistake that young coaches make. Um, And I remember one of, I think she was a softball coach talking about this. I watched, um, listened to a podcast where she was interviewed and she said one of the biggest things that she had to change when she went from elite athlete to coaching was she had to understand that she couldn't socialise with the athletes anymore. So I think that's a very key part of, what you have to do you you can socialize to a certain extent but you for example you're at a party and there might be a bit of drinking going on you know you have to go home earlier um and that's just the way it is so it's those sorts of things knowing the social temperature i guess of the group um and knowing you know what buttons to push with people and also you know where the line is drawn in terms of getting too personal um I've been very fortunate to have great um, people to work with in that regard. My wellbeing manager at the Diamonds, Angie Bain, was always terrific for me to know where to draw the line on conversations with athletes. Um, I brought Angie in deliberately because the players were struggling with their off court issues and, as a coach, you can only do so much or take on so much of the off-court issues. And if you take on too much, then, as you said before, you can't look at things dispassionately and a little bit more logically and rationally, and you've got to think of the team and what's best for the team. So that's the importance in, in keeping that line of, yes, I know them well, but there is a line and I need to keep that um, separated because it's not necessarily good for the team. I think when coaches get too close to players, they become friends. It causes all sorts of issues in teams and clubs.
1: Yeah, I understand. Um, When you moved into the Diamonds role, you talked a lot about the cultural changes you brought. And one of them was the high performance training program. And I I believe that you talk about it as being something that you're very proud of. Um, but could you talk a little bit about this program and uh, explain it and how you introduced it, but importantly, how you felt it improved the team?
2: Um, Well, it's interesting because, you know, netball at that time and the Australian team were actually, you know, they just won the world cup in Singapore. So they were pretty good. What I sought to do and I, you, and I, I guess I used my bill, my mentors, um, Bill Sweetenham's, you know, I guess, philosophy here, which was we can always get better. Um, And Joyce Brown was always one for that. And I knew by looking at the athletes that they could get better and I thought we could put much more distance between us and New Zealand based on particularly our physical conditioning. I thought we could improve in that area. So that was one of the key, what I called low-hanging fruit at the time that we could actually get some work done in. Um, The other area was to get them working on the cultural development of the team to actually purposely and specifically work on that because that was starting to cause a situation where athletes didn't want to actually go to Diamonds camps. And, you know, as I explained before, I missed out on the team. So I, I would have walked over, bought broken glass to get in the Australian team. So to hear that athletes weren't enjoying it was a real shock to me. So I knew that there was something that needed fixing. And just in that first six months when I took over the team, I realised that there was some clicks, there was some entitlement, and there was a need to work on the culture. And that's where the Sisters in Arms trademark came out of. And I had Ray McLean from Leading Teams work with us. And he worked with me throughout the whole time. And the other area was high performance. And it was to really put a challenge to the players about The fact that why, you know, okay, you're number one in the world. You've just won the world cup, but you know, we're not the world's best high performance program. The all blacks are by far. Come on, you know, let's, let's get up there. Let's, let's judge ourselves at a higher level. So I put the challenge to them to become the the world's best high performance program. And so that's what we sought to do. And in all areas, not just in our technical and skill area, but also, you know, in our well-being area, in how we um, perform psychologically, um, how our physical conditioning is. I thought there was many improvements that we could make in that area and we did. Um, so, and you have to have really good people work with you on those areas. So it was also important to get great staff um, around me to work with me on that program of high performance. And you know, Ray McLean's view is also the fact that, you know, it's, it's about us being the world's best team. Um, and to be a high-performing team, you've got to work on the dynamics of the team as well. You can't just work on the mechanics. So we sought to do it all. And, you know, I think we did that for a number of years and we were world number one throughout my, um, the whole time that I was head coach, which I'm very proud of. And we also were rated the number one sport by the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, I think three times during my tenure. So, you know, and that's independent rating. Um, So I'm very proud of that too.
1: I think there's many things that you should be proud of uh, Lisa, but I, I, when I was preparing for today, I said I won't ask you about the eighty-one percent winning record because everybody else does. So, if I can just, I'll jump over that. But what That's I'd, li-
2: okay.
1: <laughs> I'd like—eighty-one to- <laughs>
2: percent ah, should have been hundred.
1: <laughs> well, we we can get to that later on as well. But I, if it's not too personal, I'd like to jump into the Sisters in Arms trademark because I've heard you talk about it a couple of times. But I would like to ask you if you could describe it at at a little bit with a little bit more detail about what the specific values or behaviors that were attached to it were and, and possibly also how you went about developing it.
2: Yeah. um, Again, it was our leading teams model. And um, in 2012, instead of spending, I guess, a day and a half on training, we decided to prioritize working on us as a team and team development. So that meant the staff as well. So the staff had to go through a program of um, working out what what our trademark was too. Um, Now it's a lesser known one. It's called the pact um, and that meant um, to be professional, approachable, committed team. So we were the team behind the team and it was very important for the support staff, particularly to understand that it's the athletes that are the main show, not us and leave your egos at the door. Um, it's a big thing in high-performance sport, particularly when you get a position in a, in a national team. You don't want people who are there just the, the gold jersey. You want them there because they're fair income, about supporting the athletes. So that was critically important in the selection of the staff. So we had to do that work ourselves and come to agreements about how we were going to operate together as a, as a, a staff group. Um, So we worked on that whilst the athletes were also working with Ray on what they were going to have as their trademark and what what they really believed in. And we hadn't really spent that time. Everyone had taken it for granted. Culture happens no matter what, and I think most businesses know that these days. So it's important that you spend some time talking about it and discussing it as a group. And that's what they did. And Ray did a few exercises with them about things. And some of them were quite shocked. They heard, you know, some confronting feedback from from the first time. For example, you know, why was it that they had a pecking order? And some of the older athletes said, we don't. And they said, well, you do. The younger athletes said, you do, because you have your places on the bus. And, you know, if you sit in your place, and I won't mention names, well, you get glared at. So... And that's just not acceptable, even in the Diamonds. It's not acceptable. Um, what we wanted was to create a squad mentality where the youngest person or the most inexperienced in the squad could come in, feel really, really comfortable, have been inducted by the leaders and feel like they could contribute from day one. So if we, did, if we got feedback from our you know, newest members that that wasn't happening, then things needed to change. It also enabled us to every time we got together as a team or a squad that we would be able to um, reconnect with each other after we'd been mortal enemies in, you know, the domestic league. We could come together quickly, put all that aside and get on with the business of representing our country without all the other crap to go through. So <laughs> it was a good crap detector. Um, the na- I guess the trademark came out of the beliefs that the players had at that time. One of them was to be true. The second one was to believe and belief. And the third one was to be an intimidating force. Um, So they were the three kind of behaviours that they wanted to display. And then they talked about the history, you know, honouring the history and traditions of the game and leaving it in a great place. And this is what Laura Geitz has always said as my captain few like a year after this that we wanted to leave the program in such a good space that it would be taken on by the next generation and shined up again and improved on and that was a sort of you know mentality that we wanted to have so the sisters in arms was born out of guides saying well how do we feel when we're on the side of the court and we're singing the national anthem we've got our arms around each other and that's where it came from sisters in arms
1: I find it,
2: amazing. So it immediately evokes a, a very emotional response like it, it, I I, it does, cons- yeah. I just say it and I just you know because every time I sang the national anthem on the side of the court it was special even it was 102 times it was still special
1: everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too I, listening to you now, I um, it's such a simple, inspiring idea. And yet, when you in, introduced your high-performance training program and you went through the process of building this trademark, people criticized you. And I'm really interested to see or hear about how you handled that because I think that had a big impact on the team as well, watching you be resilient and standing firm in what you believed.
2: Yeah, we certainly... Said- didn't i was with the players always along the line there um you know if it if we were going to be the world's best high performance program we had to do it together and that meant also you know in the process of leading teams and how we chose our captains even was very much criticized at the time and it still is today and it's probably one of the things why at the end of the day I may not be doing the job now because perhaps there are people in the positions of power that don't particularly like that Um, and you know that's again an entitlement thing um but I think it it produces the best leaders that way and the leaders that I had in the time that I coached the diamonds were outstanding and you know, Laura Geitz was voted in by her peers. I mean, why would you ignore that? Mm. Um, and you know, she presents extremely well. And at the end of the day, she had to go for an interview. But we decided from then on that we didn't need to interview to see who the captain was going to be. But obviously, Nepal Australia had to agree. And that's what I, we always said, that we would choose our leaders and the captain and vice captain would come out of that. I would make the recommendation to the board and the board would rubber stamp it basically, unless they didn't. You know, they, if they disagreed, I'm certainly, they would have let me know. But I think it's worked extremely well. I think it's shown the way of how the team can collaborate, collaboratively work together, how they can work on their leadership skills as people. And this is where I said to them, you know, we should be able to get a prime minister out of you because you're all at the top of your game in your sport. You're learning about yourselves. You're learning how to lead. And, you know, this is what we want you to do, hopefully, when you go back out there. I think you will probably get there one day. You never know. And what about you, Lisa? How did you deal with it? Um, Yeah, look, it was okay. At the end of the day, I knew it was the right thing. Thing. And if we were winning World Cups and if we hadn't won, if we hadn't have won Com Games, well, I would have been out anyway, you know, back in 2014. So the proof was in the pudding and that's, you know, I'd always talk to Ray about it and, you know, talk about the things that we were doing in that area. And the players just embraced it. They loved it and the staff loved it. It, it made a lot of sense. And it helped us to work better together as a group. So, in our own bubble, we were absolutely fine together about it. Outside, yeah, people thought it was a bit strange, but, you know, we just, if you keep winning, that shuts everybody up. So,
1: I said I didn't want to mention the 81% I'll just say that again but I will mention <laughs> I will mention that in the 102 matches that you coached the national team over 8 years you lost just 19 games but that's mm. not the question I want to ask actually because I've read that when you were starting out as a coach that you led a team that didn't win a game for a year <laughs> and I'd like to ask you how did you help that team maintain focus and motivation when they were clearly falling short of their own expectations
2: and my expectations that was the worst part Um, I learned a lot from that year in fact that year preceded me being appointed to the Phoenix Melbourne Phoenix back in 2002 so go figure here I was in Charge of a team that lost every game, and then I got appointed to the Melbourne Phoenix, and we won the premiership. So it just goes to show that you know, coaching. Yes, of course, the very top you are constantly you know judged on your results and what you do. I think what I get frustrated about though is in the sporting world that we don't examine the coaching in say netball or the the more minor sports well enough. We just you know, the journalists will just simply look at the win-loss loss ratio and they'll say, what the hell, you're at 81%. How did you not get reappointed? And people don't understand that in netball it's not acceptable not to win World Cups, etc. But that's not the point. The point is, you know, you, le- you learn a lot about yourself when you're under that sort of adversity of losing week after week when you're coaching a team and at the time it was Gippsland and we had training at Pakenham stadium, it was about an hour away from my home. So, you know, I'm away from family, you know, the team's losing and it's hard yakka. It's hard work. Um, But the team, you know, my, my team were terrific. They worked hard. We just didn't get the results, but the first half of the year was not enjoyable. And it was mainly because of me being, you know, ego-driven, I guess, in many respects and thinking I'm losing every game, this is horrible. Um, it's, you know, it's going to wreck my reputation as a coach, all those sorts of things. So I was thinking selfishly and my captain came to me and she said, Lisa, what's wrong with you? You, you know, you're usually bubbly and, you know, enthusiastic. And she just gave me a really good talking to her. and I taught Zoe at school Um, she was my captain she was going to be a PE teacher we ended up being at the same um, Wesley College together back a few years after she's a great great young woman and um, that was a turning point for me I said said, you're right so from that point on I got to work on developing I guess statistics and goals for the team that were reasonable that we could achieve and it wasn't going to be about the outcome anymore it was going to be concentrate on the process and so we went through and we worked really hard together again together as a group not the coach telling everyone how what to do but us working together as a team we didn't get a win but we got very close I think at one game we only lost by one it was a bit heartbreaking but we achieved those goals that we set for ourselves. And the second half of the year was so much more enjoyable. So there it is.
1: Lisa, I wanted to ask you about taking over from an iconic coach, normal Plummer. which you know, a lot of coaches move into a role and they are taking over from someone that had significant success. How were you able to find the line between honouring the past but also energising the team and doing all that good stuff that you just talked about?
2: well I think we did it because we did honor the past that we and I was very deliberate in my approach also with the press I would never criticize Norma at all and I actually had to work alongside her in our program because she took over the west coast fever and so she was one of the coaches that I had to work with so guess what I just had to you know, button my lip sometimes. Take on board a bit of the the Norma um, conversation and just get on with it, and just really deliver results. And at the end of the day, you know, Norma probably was asked whether I would be good enough to take over the diamonds. She must have thought I was okay. Um, she often likes the players that she had coached in the past to be the coaches that go on. And at the moment, I think she clearly say Simone McInnes should be the next diamonds coach Um, but you know at that time it was quite hard because you know I was doing some things that were very different and even I remember going to have a first meeting with her and Kath Cox and I took my strength and conditioning coach with me who was different to the one that she had and we were going to be implementing some quite different things she didn't like it (laughs) at all and the problem was that that was always difficult for the players to have to manage coaches' egos at the very top. And as the Australian coach, I didn't want to put players in that situation, so I tried to work very, very hard to work alongside shoulder to shoulder with all the coaches. And um, you know, I had some good supporters with at me with me at the time, then who were willing to work alongside me and, and assist as much as possible. Rosalie Jenke and uh, Julie Hornwig in Victoria at the time were very supportive. So you sort of had to take your wins where you could get them at the time. But I was always very careful to um, say positive things about Norma's legacy. You know, what a fantastic legacy I would get to build upon. And, you know, but I knew at the end of the day, there were lots of changes that I would need to have to make. So it's it's managing that balance really well.
1: When you move into your next coaching job, Lisa, in whatever sport that is, because I think your skills could, could be in rugby. Into, could be in rugby. What will be the first things that you'll do?
2: Um, I'll do what uh, another great coaching colleague of mine, Chris Fagan, who now coaches the Brisbane Lions in the AFL competition here in Australia does and that's get to know the athletes um he has some i think he had each athlete over for dinner um once a week to his house and they just talked and so it's that again and he's a teacher as well and i think it just shows you the uh importance these days of these days of connecting with young people so it's getting to know them off the the pitch so to speak off the court Um, And it'll also be getting the best support team around me as a coach. If if I was to go into another uh, sport or another netball team, it'd be getting the best support team around as possible because they are critical to your success. And again, it would be working on the dynamics and the mechanics at the same time. And it's, you know, making sure that you set a reasonable vision for the team to work towards and then you get down to work and get, get the work done and that's that consistency of effort the discipline of you know doing the things that you've said and as I've always said to people in high performance it's it's what you do when no one's watching that counts so um, and that was especially true for the diamonds because we were a decentralized program you know often people would say to me but you know what what you know how is it that they can do this and I said well because they know that if they don't do the training they're letting their teammate down so it's that mantra of we before me um, and they really take their you know their determination to be world's best seriously and they know they'll let their sisters down if they don't do it so it's about engendering and creating that environment around your team and your club that's, you know, success driven, um, but it's also caring about people.
1: I've heard you talk about getting the athletes to write a letter. I think you talk about them mm-hmm. writing a letter to introduce themselves. Could you talk a little bit about how you've used that previously?
2: Yeah, I've used it in my maths classes all the time because mathematics is the scary thing for many for many students and many parents as well. Parents have a big say in how people face mathematics. Sorry, parents, but you do. Um, So I wanted to find out a little bit more about what my students thought about mathematics, particularly when I started teaching them in year seven, but I would always get my year 12s to write a letter as well. They'd always think it was great. You turn up to your first math lesson and you don't have to get your textbook out. So you just get to write. So some of them will love that. And I just said, just write my dear miss a letter, miss a meaning, you know, miss Alexander and tell me about what it is that you're good at maths. So always focused on the positives, what, what are the things that you think you're not as good at, and how can I, as a teacher, help you to um, complete your maths more successfully? You now, what are the things that I can do to to make that transition for you, or whether it's you want to get an A plus or whatever it is, I'm willing to you know look at doing that with you. Um, and it's it's very instructive. Those letters, some of the. <laughs> You know, some of the things that students tell you over the time is it's quite um, yeah makes you feel very humble, and um, you understand the influence you can have on young people's lives. I taught a one of our pretty good basketballers that he went and got a college um, basketball scholarship in the United States and I often used to see Fergus up at AIS but I taught him in year eight and he was a really he was a bit silly then and he knew that but he just said to me how grateful he was that I was tough on him and that I kept him because he actually ended up studying mathematics in American college and he's doing a business degree and as well as obviously playing basketball at a professional level so it's it's a great thing and it's so important for life so, yes, I would apply that to the Diamonds as well. It would be really helpful. And it was also encouraging them to write um, because I wanted them to keep a journal. Um, you know, Cath Cox said to me, I remember when we were first starting the journals, I used to give them out to them. Um, she said, I've never had this before. And now I'm actually writing down the things that I'm experiencing. I should have been doing this ages ago because – I said, even to write your book or your autobiography, you need some notes. And I know that Laura Geitz kept a daily journal when she um, captained our team in the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014. So one day that will be in a book. But the great thing is that she's got a record of it. And it was important for the athletes to get – sometimes they just needed to dump their feelings if they'd had a bad day or a bad training session. They just needed to get it out on paper. And it was very helpful for them.
1: Lisa, I understand you're either close to finishing or in the process of writing a book about your experience. Um, And if there was a chapter in that book on building resilience, because I think there's many lessons and stories in, in the back of your life, which we haven't and won't have time to get to today. But resilience is a recurring theme. I wonder how you would coach that how would you develop that in athletes that potentially have got great talent but lack that ability to just keep going and keep moving forward
2: yeah look it's uh it's a hard one it's something it's a bit character driven as well but I think you know I'm a educator so I'm always optimistic that people can learn this and I think it, it goes back to that again you know the writing the journal is actually writing down those issues or experiences that have been tough and really examining them instead of, you know, not facing them. Um, I've often, you know, written down my challenges and the things that have really confronted me and what I needed, what I've needed to do, um, which has been very helpful. So it's sort of like having your own co-pilot that sort of helps you to navigate the, the tough times. Um, I think it's a, it's definitely in in influenced me as a parent but also as a, a parent of step children as well i've got two fantastic stepsons and you know the understanding the the pathway that young people need to take and not kind of getting not having so much control that they can't make a mistake but helping them to then navigate that mistake when they make it in you know, a constructive and um, positive manner I think um, and in you know sport that means you know coping with winning and losing and coping with the tough times if you know I, I know Joe Weston sat on the bench for the first oh I think 10 tests and she got really cross with me in South Africa one day and she just said I've been training so hard and you know she just had to get that off her chest and then I had you know, I needed to spend that time with her and explain to her that she had to earn her place on the court and that meant she had to sit on the bench and watch and watch her uh, teammates doing their thing. And I said to her, which one do you want to take off the court? You know, tell me. Um, I used to say to my shooters who would be complaining they weren't in the team, I said, if you get the top shooting percentage, you'll be in the team. Don't try and knock off the fourth the fourth one into the team, try and be the best in the team. And then you will be guaranteed of being selected. Um, I remember having that conversation with Susan Pettit, um, you know, and they're the sorts of tough conversations that you have to have with your athletes, but you're also giving them hope and possibility and ways to work that they can achieve their goal at the end of the day or they may never, and that's okay as well. You know, people that are involved with high-performance sport, I always think it's a, such a positive thing for them. Um, I know it can be tough and it can be hard and you have to make lots of sacrifices, but it teaches you so much, as I was saying before, about, the, you know, Google wanting, you know, coaches of netball in their organisation because they think they, they're better for their organisation. That's that character that you build when, you know, somebody says no and you've got to then work hard and prove to them yes um things don't come easily and you've got to earn your stripes um you know the head of amazon just sold all all these a lot of his shares before he made 176 billion but he wasn't making that money way back when he first started the company you know we've Mm -hmm. we've we've got to start somewhere we've got to give it a crack and We've got to have people around us to help guide us and, you know, that's why I've been blessed with so many great people to help guide me, particularly my husband, um, Malcolm, who's been fantastic support and also all the teachers and coaches I've had over the time. Very grateful for that.
1: Lisa, if I could ask one final question and it's what legacy do you believe you've left as a coach And perhaps left isn't the right word because I think you still have unfinished business. So potentially the question is (laughs) what legacy are you leaving as a coach?
2: Um, Look, I hope it's a a legacy of, you know, that the players won't hesitate to pick up the phone and and chat to me if they want to about anything. And, you know, that seems to be happening quite a bit, although they've been quite, um, I guess, you know, trying to respect my space as well after, you know, what, what proceeded um, in February and March this year. So, you know, I've had a couple of phone calls from them at different times and that's great just to chew the fat with them and, you know, be there for them as an advisor, you know, when they're having whatever, whatever's going on and also to observe them in their you know what they're doing I think that's a great thing about social media and Instagram and everything else I can watch who's having babies and you know Nat Medhurst having her baby boy and Susan Pettit this year it just fills my really fills my life with joy to see them being happy and you know getting on with life and whilst they've been you know absolute warriors for Australia out on the court they're going to be great mothers as well and you know leaders in their communities and that that fills my heart with joy.
1: Lisa Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour
2: to talk to you. Thank you very much.
0: The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim. I must admit that as a father of a young daughter, that conversation left me a little emotional and yet very inspired. Lisa is such a strong role model for us all. What an absolute privilege it was having her on our show. I found it very insightful hearing her perspective of the important role coaches play in the influencing of young minds and that behind the renowned Sisters in Arms trademark lay the packed trademark of the coaching support staff. It's a good reminder that as leaders and coaches of our own teams, that if we have played our roles well enough, we need to leave our egos at the door and let our teams be the main show. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, I speak with Rowan Taylor, the new head coach of the Australian Olympic swimming team, also known as the Dolphins.
1: So being a mentor is not about telling you what I used to do and how good it was. It's me understanding who you are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are as a coach, and working to try to provide you with resources and support to enhance what you do. So for that, I have to build really strong relationships Around the coaches, as I did with the athletes.
0: And just before we go, if you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, please contact us using the details in the show notes.